We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew on Sundays. And last week, Peter brought us a message on Matthew chapter 10. We're going to skip chapter 11 for now. And hopefully we'll be able to return to it later. Because Pastor Ron was originally planning on speaking from Matthew chapter 11. And he felt, he really felt he had a word from the Lord from Matthew chapter 11. But has had to fly to BC due to his mom having some very serious health concerns. Uh, she was in the hospital, and so he's gone out to be with her at this time. Uh, so today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 is filled with conflict. Conflict between Jesus and the, the religious authorities. And we know now, looking back, that the religious leaders of Jesus' day on this earth didn't like Jesus too much. They were jealous of his popularity, and they were threatened by his lack of conformity to their religious views. But so far in Matthew, we haven't seen any conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders just yet. We did have John the Baptist calling them a brood of vipers. And then in chapter 10, Jesus predicted persecution that included getting flogged in the synagogues. But other than that, everything's going wonderfully. No conflict yet. Crowds of people were flocking to Jesus. People were amazed at his teaching. And many people were being healed and set free from demons. But behind the scenes, one thing was certain. Jesus had caught the attention of the religious leaders. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And once Jesus got onto their radar, one can't help thinking that Jesus really actually seemed to go out of his way to escalate the conflict between them. Don't get me wrong. I don't want anyone thinking after this message that it's okay to go and pick a fight and escalate an argument with your husband or your wife or with a sibling or with a parent or with your pastor you might want to say, hey, Jesus did it. He escalated things. But if you're wondering what would Jesus do, don't think the fights he started with the Pharisees make it okay to start a fight with me or with your spouse. Jesus had messianic reasons for creating the conflicts he started with the religious authorities. And we're going to talk about those reasons this morning. Jesus was out to radically change people's understanding of God and, uh, and what our response to God should be. And he knew that changing people's spiritual understanding was going to ruffle some people's feathers because they thought they had everything already figured out. But I hope that for you and me, Jesus' perspective on these things will be an encouragement. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult passage. It's a passage uh, in which there's conflict and um, hard words being said, strong words. And yet, Lord, we know that there's always grace in your words. There's always love in your words because you are love. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us to receive your word today and be encouraged by it. 
Be edified by it. Be strengthened by it. And even be warned by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin by reading Matthew chapter 12, verses 1. I'm just going to read to verse 21. It's going to appear behind me in the English Standard Version. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man from there, or a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. How, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Many years ago, when I was, when I was about eight or ten years old, I attended a well-established Baptist church called the First Baptist Church of Royal Oak. And by first, they meant it was the first church to be established in Oakland County, Michigan, about three miles north of the Detroit city limits. It was a great church. I learned a lot there. And it had a vast, sprawling building. As an eight to ten year old after the service was over, we used to run the hallways all over that building, playing games, chasing cop and robber, that kind of stuff. The initial structure was built in 1839. That's how old the church was. And I attended there from 1965 to 1977. The sanctuary seemed like it was built for the purpose of creating awe in young boys. The ceiling seemed so high. And the wooden beams seemed so huge. And it seemed like... An entire forest of trees would have been required 
to have completed that sanctuary. Some Sundays, I would just sit and stare up at the ceiling and at the woodwork and at the cross, mesmerized by the scale, counting the beams, studying the design. On one Sunday, about one to two years before I became a Christian and was baptized, I, um, a communion was being served. In that big, dark room, trays were being passed, and I was kind of mesmerized by what was going on, and I picked up a cup. The tray moved on. Once the tray had moved on, I was horrified as I looked at this cup in my hand. What was I going to do? I wasn't supposed to take one of these. I hadn't even publicly decided to be a Christian. I hadn't been baptized. What was I doing with this cup in my hand? There's no way to get rid of it except to drink it. But how could I drink it if I hadn't officially become a Christian and been baptized? I was sitting between people I didn't know, and I couldn't explain this predicament to them, so I felt trapped. If I didn't drink it, the people next to me would think I was disrespecting the juice, and I'd wasted it. And if I did drink it, what would Jesus do to me? There's a handy expression for you. (laughs) WWJDTM. What would Jesus do to me? That's what I was wondering. Well, I decided Jesus was probably more forgiving than these people sitting beside me. So I drank it. And then I began began a long, fearful, silent prayer session with Jesus that lasted until the end of the service, begging him for forgiveness for drinking this cup before I'd been officially declared a Christian and baptized. I mean, it was a Baptist church after all. (laughs) This story comes to mind as I read about these disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. I mean, what were they thinking as they did such a thing? The disciples of Jesus were Jewish men who knew how important the Sabbath was to the Jewish people. Israel's observance of the Sabbath was no small thing. It was a sign of their special covenantal relationship with God. An imitation, an imitation of God's own rest that he took after the completion of creation. A a practice established ever since the very first human beings on the earth. And since the days of Israel's exile, when Israel was punished for ignoring God's law, that he'd given his people. The religious authorities had been very strict about following God's law. They'd established strict rules, for example, on how to honor the Sabbath. And picking grain on the Sabbath would have been forbidden because that was the work of a harvester. And harvesting couldn't be done on the Sabbath. So why didn't the disciples respond with horror to the idea idea of Jesus catching them picking grain on the Sabbath, the way I was horrified about just simply picking up a communion cup as a little boy. It's amazing to me, and it should be amazing to us, as we read this story, that the disciples even did this in the first place. Not only while with Jesus, but in full view of the Pharisees. But somehow, 
these men were already beginning to understand there was something different about Jesus. He was different than the Pharisees. He was different than the religious authorities. The Pharisees were focused on law, and they were rigid in their interpretation of it. The Pharisees were full of fear, for their rigidity was born out of a history in which Israel had been severely punished for breaking God's law and been sent into exile from the promised land for 70 years. So to avoid another similar outcome, the Pharisees were determined to keep every letter of the law, including their long and detailed interpretations of every Old Testament law, including the Sabbath. But Jesus was different. Let's stop and imagine this. Jesus and his 12 disciples were walking through a grain field. Why? Why? I mean, look at how this chapter starts. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Why, why did he even walk through a grain field? Weren't there roads? Weren't there paths? Why did they have to walk through a, a, a field of grain? But Jesus, he might have had a reason for choosing this. And as Jesus spoke to his disciples, as they walked through that grain field, the disciples, they picked some grain and rubbed it between their hands. They ate a little because they were hungry. And the Pharisees were watching from a distance, ready to pounce. And yet Jesus, aware of all this, aware of them picking grain, aware of the Pharisees, he said nothing. Jesus was different. If only I had known that as a little boy during that communion service. It would have saved me a lot of grief. Do you know Jesus in this way? Do you know how different he is? In a way that daily sets you free from a fear of failure. Or even from a, a sense of perceived failure. Some of us live our days very afraid of letting Jesus down. Do you know Jesus in a way that sets you free from seeing your relationship as being all about keeping the rules, all about being good enough, all about measuring up to a standard so that he's pleased with you? Do you know a Jesus that sets you free from that? When you know Jesus for who he really is, you know he came to make a way for us to be forgiven for the rules that we break and to offer us a life based on an incredible love for us rather than on keeping all the rules. Because that's what our relationship with Jesus is based on. It's based on love, not rule keeping. But there's not even any evidence in this story that the disciples were breaking any rules. They weren't farmers trying to sneak in a little harvesting work on the Sabbath. They were just casually picking a bit of grain because they were hungry. But the Pharisees rebuked them. And Jesus' response is very revealing. Jesus reminded the Pharisees of David's men eating consecrated bread when they were hungry. And of priests who worked in the temple every Sabbath. And in neither example does scripture rebuke them. And then Jesus reminds them of the prophet Hosea's words. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Clearly, the Pharisees did not understand the application of that 
prophetic word meant not using their interpretation of God's law as a stick to beat hungry, needy people with. But then Jesus goes a step further and makes an incredible claim that was sure to raise the ire of the Pharisees. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Can you feel the tension as Jesus says this? Jesus just claimed an exclusive right that only belongs to God. Jesus is beginning right here to intentionally create conflict with these powerful and highly influential men that could get him killed. The tension mounts. As Matthew goes on to say, he went on from there and entered the synagogue. Now personally, I don't know about you, but given a choice, I prefer to avoid conflict. I don't tend to go looking for it, especially with people in great authority in my world. I I once, when I was a boy, created conflict with someone in authority. I was living in Michigan at the time. I was probably, again, I was about 8 or 10 years old. What is it about when I was 8 or 10 years old? You know? And I wanted to take diving lessons. So my parents signed me up for diving lessons at a local outdoor pool. And uh, I loved it because I, I used to love trying flips off boards and stuff. And we had an instructor. His name was Bruce. Bruce was a great diver. Man, could he could do things off a one-meter springboard that I didn't think were possible. How do you have enough time to do that many flips? And he would teach us to do flips, and we were learning, and we were getting a little better at it class by class. I took about three or four classes, and we loved Bruce. Bruce was, he was, he was our hero. I don't know what got into my head, but one day when we were in the change room after diving lessons, this is in the days of hard soap. You've heard of hard soap, you know, like they used to have hard soap instead of liquid soap at the sinks and the change room. I picked up a bar of hard soap and I wrote on the mirror in big, huge letters, Bruce the Moose. <laughs> Why did I do that? Well, before the next lesson came up, I'd heard from one of my friends, oh, Bruce was mad. Bruce was not happy with me. Well, was I going to go into the synagogue where the authorities were? Was I going to go back to diving lessons? No, siree. I stopped going to diving lessons after that point. And uh, even though my parents had paid for it, I suppose I should tell my parents this and pay them back if I'm going to make restitution. But I, I skipped the rest of all my diving lessons. I'll call my parents after and ask if they want to be reimbursed. <laughs> so I cringe as I continue reading this story. Jesus entered the synagogue, the domain of the Pharisees. He was intending to create a scene. I'm convinced of it. It says in Scripture, Scripture is clear that Jesus only did what his heavenly Father was doing. His heavenly Father would instruct him what to do. I think Jesus knew there was going to be a sick man in that synagogue. And if picking a little grain, doing the work of a farmer, would upset the Pharisees, I'm sure doing the work of a physician would as well, and it did. There was a man with a withered hand in the synagogue, so Jesus immediately asked the Pharisees, 
Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In Mark's version of this same story, when Jesus called the man with the withered hand, and, and, and the Pharisees were silent in response to those questions Jesus asked, it says, Mark wrote, that Jesus looked around at the Pharisees with anger, grieved at their, at their hardness of heart. And then Jesus healed the man right in front of them. In his synagogue. On the Sabbath. Behold. The Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he was demonstrating. The Lord of the Sabbath. At work. On the Sabbath. In this swift example. Jesus has just moved on from not only claiming that the Sabbath was his, because he was Lord of the Sabbath, but also claiming that that man he healed was his. When he said, which one of you who has a sheep? I can't help but wonder. I can't help but wonder, was Jesus implying that this man is one of my sheep? I intend to take hold of him and lift him up today. To lift him out of this pit. Jesus said on another occasion. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. He was speaking of his sheep. Jesus said on another occasion. That he'd come to seek and to save the lost. To rescue, rescue us from the power of sin in our lives. To set us free from the influence of evil in the world. That's the work Jesus came to do. For that man with the withered hand. And for us. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus also healed another man on the Sabbath. The man by the pool of Bethesda. It was the first time Jesus had openly violated the Sabbath in Jerusalem when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees' opposition in that occasion by saying, My father is working until now, and I am working. The Lord of the Sabbath at work on the Sabbath. Jesus is different. Though mankind may have broken God's Sabbath rest, the Lord of the Sabbath is fulfilling the Sabbath by working to bring Sabbath rest to us all. He knows that because of the sin that's in our hearts, we're lacking the Sabbath rest That he intends for us. And the work Jesus did. Was to bring Sabbath rest to us all. This man with the withered hand. Is not at rest. He's my child. And as Lord of the Sabbath. I plan to bring him rest. That is the kind of good. That Jesus knew. It was okay to do on the Sabbath. Now look at this often overlooked detail. In Matthew 12.15. Regarding what Jesus did next. I don't usually notice this. I'm focusing on what's going on in the synagogue. But then it says Jesus withdrew from there. And many followed them. And he healed them all. On the Sabbath. Take that, Pharisees. Hey? Yeah. Matthew then tells us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which maybe that part I just did wasn't, that all that was in fulfillment of the promise of 
God's chosen servant prophesied about in Isaiah. Jesus is fulfilling a prophetic passage here. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in the name, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. There is no time to explore the many reasons this quote from Isaiah was chosen here. But clearly Matthew intended to use this passage and this story about Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees to clarify truths about God. As I said before, the Pharisees were focused on the law and on their rigid interpretation of it. But Jesus was different. The Pharisees expected the Messiah to come in power, to conquer and set up an earthly kingdom. But Jesus came as a servant to do good, to love those that he would set free and bring rest. The conflict in this passage was meant to bring increased clarity to who the Messiah is. A savior of love. Not only of God's chosen people, the Jews, but also of all the world. Justice to the Gentiles. And when Jesus healed them all on that precious Sabbath day, his intention was to express a Savior's loving heart to a people with withered hearts. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. What has this conflict with the Pharisees clarified about how Jesus was different? Jesus is merciful in his lordship. He'd rather show mercy to us than harshly measure our sacrifice. Jesus is caring in his lordship. He'd rather help us find rest than insist on resting himself. Jesus is extravagant in his lordship. He heals all who come to him especially healing our, our souls. But on top of all that, what does the prophecy in Isaiah mean when it says, until he brings justice to victory? I believe it's referring to the justice of the cross. The cross that Jesus would one day be nailed to so that God's justice would be satisfied. Justice required because he needed to punish the rebellion against a holy God. Jesus planned to take that punishment upon himself on behalf of the whole world. And so Jesus actually expressed his love for his sheep on that Sabbath day because he knew it would provoke the Pharisees so that they'd want to kill him. He knew that he needed to die. He knew that he needed to be crucified. And in the midst of the cosmic conflict that was going on, the cosmic conflict between God and the enemy of our souls, came a servant ready to bless us and a Savior willing to die for us. So what is your response to Jesus working in this way to bring true Sabbath rest to us all? Jesus came to a people tied up in rule-keeping. 
to show us what God was truly like. A God of mercy who made a way to forgive his children. Even for little boys making such a tiny mistake all those years ago. Even for people who find it hard to forgive themselves. I know, just by the law of averages, there's probably people in this room for whom there's something in your heart you are struggling to forgive yourself for. May I ask, may I appeal to you to agree with God this morning that if you know Jesus, you are forgiven and you can forgive yourself. Well, that's clarifying Jesus' lordship. The passage goes on to talk about how we respond to his lordship. As the conflict continues, and as we continue reading, Jesus clarifies what our response should be. And this next passage is one of the most sobering in the entire New Testament. After Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees on that amazing Sabbath day, he entered into another conflict with the Pharisees after a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. The response of the crowd when this man was healed was amazement and to wonder if this could be the son of David, meaning the Messiah, the Savior, which was enough to draw a strong opposing reaction from the Pharisees who were there. It says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were in constant fear of losing control of the people. And when they heard people pondering whether Jesus may or may not be the Messiah, they felt the need to intervene. And though what they said was shocking, Jesus' response to their words was extremely strong. This is the passage in which Jesus refers to the unforgivable sin. How many struggling Christians have wrestled with what this means? God only knows. Let's read verses 22 to 31. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebel, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. 
The Pharisees said terrible things about Jesus, saying that he cast out demons by the power of the devil. And Jesus' response was, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Wow. The God of infinite grace and infinite love has just identified something he won't forgive. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot of opinions on that. I prefer the most plain and simple explanation that makes as few assumptions regarding the example of this story as necessary. I believe this story speaks of a people who have insistently rejected God, refusing to believe in his mercy and in his power to save, and who willfully and unrepentantly resist the witness of God's Spirit regarding Jesus being our Lord and Savior. That's my definition. It basically means rejecting Jesus until the day you die. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 14, when the Spirit of truth comes, that's the Holy Spirit that Jesus has been talking about, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. That's the Spirit's role. Among many other roles, His primary role is to exalt Jesus. And to refuse what the Spirit declares to us about Jesus is the one thing God cannot forgive. Because forgiveness from God is not possible without accepting who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. And when we reject what the Spirit seeks to communicate to us about Jesus, when we reject that witness of the Spirit, we're left without Jesus in our hearts. And we're left standing at those pearly gates with no answer for how or why we should be allowed into heaven. I also believe this passage in Matthew 12 is speaking about a sin that one must persist in because what Jesus says here is to men who have just said what they said, who have just said what they said, it, it's, what Jesus has said to them sounds more like a warning than a condemnation. I don't believe Jesus was condemning them at that with his words. He was warning them. Because if we keep reading, we see that Jesus makes an appeal to the Pharisees. Look at what it continues to say in verse, verse 30, 33. Either make the, true, the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. There's the appeal. Come on, guys. Make the fruit good. Make the tree good. Don't, don't make the fruit bad. Don't choose bad fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So obviously the Pharisees 
We're not on the right track at this point. He's given them an appeal. Make the fruit good. But he said, you brood of vipers, you are not doing well so far. I tell you, on the day of judgment, in other words, you have until then, or until the day you die, to yield to God. On the day of judgment, people, you, anyone, all of us, will have to give an account for every careless word we spoke. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You have until then. But I appeal to you. Make the tree good, and its fruit good. Choose Jesus. In the summer of 1983, I went to England to participate in two months of street evangelism. That's me with the leather jacket on. It's a little embarrassing, but I thought I'd use that picture. We would do street theater on the street, and the, 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 the dramas that we were doing would draw a crowd, and then once the crowd was drawn, there'd be a man who would use a sketchboard, and he would preach the gospel on the street. And when he was finished the, preaching a short sermon on the street, we as a team would move into the crowd and start talking to people, asking people what they think of it all. I personally was on the receiving end of some strong and striking reactions from people I approached, but one man in particular stood out. And it remains in my memory to this day, 34 years later. I've forgotten almost every other person I've met that summer, but I remember this man. We'll call him John, because um, his name was John. (laughs) John and I talked for about 90 minutes on the street, and in the days that followed, I had further conversations with him. He was a real thinker. He came to the local church with me on Sunday. He seemed to sense that God was real. But he was resistant to becoming a follower of Christ without actually being able to explain why. One day I was visiting with him in his flat and I remember exactly where I was sitting. I was sitting on a couch as John paced the floor in front of me and his fists were clenched. His fists were clenched so tight I could see the whites of his knuckles. I asked him about the claims of Christ. I asked him about the implications of what Christ had done. And he seemed both angry and desperate at the same time. And when I asked him if he wanted to accept Christ, he stood there and stared at me intensely, his whole body tense. And then he said, no! I don't know whatever happened to John. All I know is he was insistently rejecting God, refusing to accept his mercy and his power to save, willfully resisting the witness of God's spirit regarding Jesus being our Lord and Savior. I believe the unpardonable sin would be if John persisted in that resistant posture until the day he had to stand before God. I wonder if Paul was speaking of that. In Romans 1, when he talked about those who stubbornly persist in their refusal to acknowledge God until God gives them over to a debased mind. We have here a warning about the unpardonable sin. A sin that one must persist in until the day they face God for it to be unforgivable. And this should sober anyone, anyone who has not yet submitted to Jesus' lordship. It's why the Bible says, Behold, now is the day of salvation.
I appeal to you, if you don't know Jesus today, yield to him. Believe in his mercy and his power to save you. And for anyone who worries that as a Christian you may have committed the unforgivable sin because at some point you resisted the Spirit's message regarding Jesus as our Savior, don't worry another moment. Any Christian who grieves or worries about any potential sin that's in our hearts is not the sort of person who is insistently rejecting God, willfully and unrepentantly resisting the Spirit. If somebody is resisting the Spirit, they're not feeling the kind of grief of someone who grieves that they may have committed this sin. But rather than moving on to the remainder of the chapter, allow me to conclude with a simple application. Jesus said to the Pharisees, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. For how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he indeed may plunder his house? Well, the kingdom of God has come. And it had come then for those who witnessed this miracle of this blind and mute man. And Jesus had already begun to bind the strong man, the devil, and to plunder his house as he healed all those people who followed him as he left the synagogue. And that same Jesus who's Lord of the Sabbath Sabbath is still healing people today, casting out demons from people all over this world in these days that we're living in. The kingdom of God has come. And I believe the Lord of the Sabbath wants to do those things here today and every day in our lives, in each one of us, so that he can bring true Sabbath rest to our souls because of the great sacrifice he made on the cross for us.